Well, hey there, my name is Pastor Roy, and I'm glad you've joined us this morning. We are into a series where we're looking at the seven churches and the letters, the seven churches of Revelation, and the letters that Jesus wrote to them. So I I encourage you this morning to to kick back, uh, grab a refill of coffee as we kind of settle in and we look at God's word. Well, we're smack dab, like I said, in this seven-week series, right in the middle of a series that's going to take us all the way through to the end of June. And this series is called Dear Church. In the book of Revelation, the disciple John, he's nearing the end of his life. And at the end of his life, he's inspired by Jesus to write these letters to these seven churches in Revelation. And each of these letters that are written is an encouragement or a warning, or sometimes it's both of these to the churches. But these letters weren't just written to these particular specific congregations. They were words of encouragement and warning for the universal church for all time. And that includes APA. Well, last week, Pastor Justin did a great job at presenting the letter that was written to the church in Pergamum. This week, we look at the letter that was written to a church called Thyatira. Now, we're going to dive in. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2. Verses 18 to 29, and here's what the letter says. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds." I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you, Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them. Depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have, what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. That's some heavy stuff. And there's a lot to break down this morning, time permitting. We're going to look at a a big chunk of that letter and what that means to our church. First off, every time that Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation, he references some part of his character like he does in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, my eyes are like flames of fire. What does that mean? Well, first, it means there's no place to hide. There's no refuge from the gaze of Jesus. He sees everything you do, and he knows the intention behind why you do it. Do it. It's all exposed to him. You can't mask your true self 
from God. You can't hide behind your wealth. You can't hide behind the clothes that you wear. You can't put a filter on your Facebook profile to mask who you truly are. He knows and sees what you do, and he knows the reason why you do it. And he wants Thyatira to know, I can see everything. And he wants you to know the same. He can see it all. The second thing he mentions is that he has feet that are like polished bronze. Well, what do you have feet for? Feet are so that you can move. Feet are so that you can go from one place to another. And Jesus says, I have eyes to see and I have feet to move. This is the contrast to the idols of that day that many of the people in Thyatira would worship. The idols of that, of that day were inanimate objects that had eyes that could not see and feet that could not move, but not Jesus. He says, I have eyes to see the issues that are at hand. I have feet to move towards them. He's able to speak into your situation, not just be something you put on a shelf. And he can put a finger on your situation and say, this right here, this needs to change. He, was, he, he says things to them like, I, you see this right here? That's not kind. You see that right there? Well, that's not very loving. I, I see that right there, and that's not fruitful. That's not going to bring you abundant life. So he's, what he's saying to the church in Thyatira is, this is who I am. I am not merely an idol that does not deserve your worship. I am the living God in human form. So, he's, so what he's saying to this church in Thyatira is I am worthy of your worship. Let me give you a little bit of background on the city of Thyatira. Of all the cities that were home to these seven different churches, Thyatira is probably the least significant when it comes to those cities that were on the map. The only other place that we will find in Scripture the mention of Thyatira is in Acts. When Paul is preaching in Philippi, and one of the converts of his ministry is this lady named Lydia. And it mentions that Lydia came from Thyatira. So there is this idea or there's this theory that the church in Thyatira likely came out of Lydia's faith conversion. She helped start this church that was now found in Thyatira. Thyatira was a major manufacturing center, a trade center. What they were known for were their trade guilds along with this manufacturing. You see, I grew up in Oshawa. And Oshawa is known for its manufacturing. Primarily General Motors made cars and trucks. But there were many other manufacturers that were in around that area that supplied parts to GM. And with the manufacturing, there were also unions. And this is what the trade guilds were. This is what they were known for. Thyatira was known for their working unions. There was a fabric dyers union. There was a, a wool workers union. There was a linens worker union, a potter's union, a tanner's union, a bronze smith union, a baker's union, and more. So, but here's the major difference with the unions of Thyatira and maybe the union that you're a part of today. In Thyatira, the union you were part of was not just your work life, although it was a major part of it, but it also it seeped into your social life. It also seeped into your spiritual life. So even though maybe you were a potter and you were part of the potter's union, you also hung in the social circles with the potter's union, and you also worshipped the gods of that potter's union. 
So to make a decision in Thyatira that you were going to follow Jesus, you were making a decision that was going to affect your profession or your standing within your profession and your union. Your decision to follow Jesus had significant potential to affect your income. To be part of the church in Thyatira, you were deciding that you were going to be different than those in your trade because you couldn't follow Jesus and other idols. That was going to put you outside the network. That was going to affect you directly. You were going to lose opportunities because who of who you so associated with. In verse 19, Jesus encourages them. He says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in the, all these things. So the Christians in Thyatira, they were steadfast. As a result, they were growing daily and being more and more like him. And this is a great progress report. This is what Jesus speaks into their life is incredible. Don't you want Jesus to speak into your life like that? Don't you want him to say, I saw where you were and that was good, but I also see where you are now and it's better. I see your faith and it's so much stronger. I see the way that you love. It's so much deeper. I see the way that you serve. There was so much more conviction than you used to. I think that's what we all want when it comes to how Jesus sees us. This is discipleship. This is moving in a constant direction closer to God, not settling, not getting complacent, as many of us have allowed that to happen in our Christian walk. It's a good word when Jesus says, I saw where you were and that you were, you were good, but you are so much better now. And so that Jesus says, okay, now for you to continue to progress, I also need to point out some tough things. If you have someone in your corner that wants the best for you, they're going to say the things that you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. If you're like me, or if you're just a guy, you don't love going to the hospital. If there's something wrong, maybe you've got a bad shoulder or a bum knee, there's this tendency to think, oh, if I just leave it, it'll just go away. But a lot of times, it won't. You're never going to be whole unless you actually address the weakness, unless you have it fixed. But that's what Jesus, he wants to do out of love. He puts his finger on their weakness and he says, you will never be fully whole unless you fix this thing right here. And we don't like that because we're like, we cringe. You're like, don't touch there, it's fine. But in verse 20 and 21, Jesus puts his finger right on their sore spot. And he says, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual, sexual sin and to eat offered, food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. There's a lot of things here. First thing is this. We're given this name, Jezebel. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you're very familiar with this name. But if you didn't grow up in the church, perhaps you've heard this name before. Maybe you've heard somebody referred to as a Jezebel. And you didn't quite know where this came from. Well, Jezebel is the name of a queen that we find in 1 Kings chapter 16. You can read more about that, that later. But Jezebel is married to this king of Israel named Ahab. And God gave Ahab this role of leading and shepherding the people of Israel. But he's married to this woman 
who is not devoted to God, does not follow God, who follows false prophets like the prophet, or like the, like the god Baal, the, the false god Baal. She worships him. And she influences Ahab in the way in which he leads his people. And so the prophet Elijah comes along and he says the same thing that basically Jesus is saying to Thyatira. He says, Ahab, you need to repent. The people of Israel deserve a godly king that will have the same standards that God upholds. But instead of listening to the warning, Ahab is influenced by Jezebel and he loses his way. He loses his calling. He makes God less of a priority. And ultimately, well, it doesn't end well for him or for her. You can read about that at some point later. But this spirit of Jezebel that he's referring to is anything that would take us or our eyes off of God, put our priorities and worship on things that are of lesser significance. To which you're thinking, well, I don't worship other gods. But hang on. You see, I used to think as I was reading through my Bible that anytime the Israelites or later any of the followers of Jesus began to worship false gods, I used to think it was like a clean swap. Like I'm going to, I worship God now and I'm going to trade that in. I'm going to, I'm going to worship false gods instead. But that's not necessarily the case. Oftentimes, they added their false gods to their worship of Yahweh, the, the one true God, the God in which we worship. And so like their other false gods, they put Yahweh in his compartment. So maybe when I need rain for my crops, I would worship the goddess Demeter, who is the goddess of agriculture. And when I need wisdom, I, I would sacrifice to Athena, the goddess of wisdom. But I also had Yahweh in my back pocket, well, for anything else that other areas which I need to call upon him for. Which, it sounds ridiculous until you realize that in North American culture, we do the same thing. We worship Jesus on Sunday, but then we worship money and success on Monday. We worship entertainment on Tuesday. We might worship comfort on Wednesday. We worship the bottle on Friday nights. We worship that guy or that girl on Saturday. And we worship Jesus again on Sunday. It's getting real now. How do you end up worshiping lesser things? You give permission for those lesser things to take the role of Jesus in your life. Permission. Maybe even more, you tolerate lesser things. I remember being an educational assistant in, in the school board, in, in the classroom, and I was kind of tethered to this one student, so I would follow their class around, and over the course of a week, they, they would have four or five different teachers that would teach them different subjects. And it was always interesting for me to watch different leadership styles of the different teachers. But it was also interesting to note that the classroom sometimes would be really quiet and work really well under one teacher. And like 30 minutes later, they'd be completely out of control, throwing chalk and stuff because of, from an, an, under, the, under the authority of a different teacher. Same students, different style, different standards. One teacher who was actually their, basically their homeroom teacher, who had a very hard time with the students, was terrible when it came to his follow-through. 
Students would literally get up out of their desk, wander around the classroom, and go and find an empty seat beside one of their friends. He would notice, and he would tell them, go back to your seat. And I would watch them as they would just sit there. They wouldn't move. They wouldn't go back to their seat. And they would whisper to their friend. I could hear them, just wait. He won't make me go back. He'll forget. And so the students learned that the classroom rules for this particular teacher were not in stone. They'd never get away with it with the last period's teacher. And he would say one thing, but he would tolerate another. This is a helpful principle in many areas of life. You get what you tolerate, not what you want. You see, that teacher wanted an obedient, orderly, uh, respectful class environment. But he tolerated something much less, and that's what he got. Parents, you know this. You don't get out of your kids what you want just simply because you want it. If you want them to make their beds, if you want them to unload the dishwasher, if you want them to do their homework, their natural tendency is to push back a little bit. And wishing for it more, wishing for it harder, doesn't make them do what you want them to do. It doesn't make them, you know you want them to become a productive member of the household and set them up for the future. But that doesn't, just wishing for it won't happen. You get what you tolerate. If, in the same way, if this is true in the Christian life, and God cares about you and wants you to live the abundant life, he wants you to know he has a standard, a standard that is best for you, and he won't tolerate anything less. And so Jesus says the same thing to Thyatira. I see your good works. I see how you're taking this stand in a culture that makes it so difficult to maintain that stand. And I've seen how much you have grown in your Christian faith, but there's more room to grow. But you're not going to get there just because you want to get there. You're going to have to be careful of the things that you will tolerate in your life. Now, you recognize, I recognize this word tolerate is a word that our society sort of upholds. It lifts it on a pedestal, that we should tolerate all things. But the truth is, where there is toleration, there can be no repentance. Where there's toleration, there can be no repentance. Because when you're willing to tolerate things in your life, you can talk around your sin. You can rationalize it. You can make it seem like it's not that bad. But Satan is not stupid. You have an enemy of your soul that wants to destroy you from the inside. Going straight at Jesus didn't work for Satan. The victory on the cross proved that. Instead, Satan attacks from the outskirts. If he can convince you that you need to tolerate the things in your life that God calls sin, if he can convince you that they're not that bad, that they're not actually sin, then, well, repentance isn't necessary and neither is the need for Jesus. And the work of the cross becomes worthless and Satan wins. This is why Jesus says, you are permitting Jezebel to lead my servants astray. You are tolerating this spirit that is destroying not just you, but my church. See, you need to be mindful of this. This message that is sent, that we read about in Revelation, it was aimed at the church. It was written for the church, not for the world. Because we as Christians have this tendency to take this message and think, well, it's true. It's true. This world tolerates way too much. If only they would take this message to heart, our world would be a different place. All the while, as the church, we let ourselves off the hook. But he wrote this message to the church. This warning is for the believer. 
Stop holding the world up to God's standards while you let yourself off the hook. It's God's job to come alongside others, draw them, convict them, and correct them, not yours. And so Jesus warns the church in Thyatira, do not permit, do not allow, do not tolerate anything below the standards God, of God in your individual lives and within the fellowship of believers. So let me take the rest of our time and point out three benefits to calling sin, sin. Number one, calling sin, sin, allows for change. When we're not willing to call things that we know God's uh, standard identifies as sin, when we're not willing to identify them as harmful and sinful, we stunt any change in our lives. Whether it's your greed or your jealousy or your tendency to gossip or act unkind to others, Anytime that you can identify it in yourself and you see it as sin and you decide I'm not going to tolerate it, anytime you refuse to give permission for it to exist, there's an opportunity to change. Anytime that you can call it out, you, there's an opportunity for you to become more like God. See, Jesus died on the cross. In a moment, we are going to celebrate communion together. We're going to do it in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. But he died on the cross, not just symbolically for you and I. He really died so that you and I would have real power for real change. See, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, this is the one thing that should compel you to seek it out. At least ask questions. Not, not, not knowing the rules and fitting in to church but real change when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. When you, when you give your life to Jesus and, and you start to allow Jesus to direct your thoughts, direct your actions, you, be, you start to see real change happen in your life. When the Holy Spirit leads and guides and convicts and corrects, when we call sin for what it really is, sin, and decide I'm not going to tolerate this anymore, God has something better in mind for me, and my future is so much brighter than what I'm seeing right now. Number two, powerful testimonies and heartfelt worship are apparent when we call sin, sin. Think about it. You don't hear powerful testimonies from people who refuse to identify their sin, went through their whole lives acting as if they had complete control over every area of their lives and that and everything was okay at all times. You don't hear powerful testimonies from those people. Every testimony that you've heard that brought glory to God begins with, I was deficient in this one area of my life and by the power of God's spirit, I am free today. And instantly some of you are thinking, Oh yeah, I, I know those testimonies. Those are the ones where people were down and out and like they were really hit rock bottom. They had addictions. They were in some serious, serious trouble. Some had some serious sin in their life. Those are powerful testimonies, but don't discount your testimony. That includes those of you that, that surrendered your life to God's leading and he rescued you from the pitfalls that lay ahead of you that you hadn't yet come across yet. The ones you didn't have to face because, because God allowed you to identify that sin is sin and you allowed him to lead you away from it before you got towards it. 
It's those that call sin, sin, that worship with a little more gusto. Worship and prayer isn't something that they just do or they endure. It's something that overflows out of their heart because they know the gravity of the forgiveness and grace in which they walk in. If we want to see powerful worship and powerful testimony in our churches, we need to call sin, sin. Number three, the good news is fully understood to be good news when you understand the bad news of sin. See, when we tolerate in our lives and when we tolerate in our churches things that fall below the standard of God, that that when we hear the good news, it doesn't make much of an impact in the way in which it should. But when you sin, when you feel guilt, when you feel shame, when you feel the weight of what you've done, when you sin against someone else, See, when I do something against someone else, I feel instantly guilty. When you lash out and you scream unkind words or something, you feel the weight of that. You feel terrible in that moment. You feel racked with guilt. When you steal from someone, when you cheat someone, you feel that. But we, we feel it, but it's the ones, the things that we do that, that only God knows about, that we tend to rationalize that it's not that bad. We tend to sweep it under the rug. We tend to tolerate it because God's the only one who knows about it. But here's what David says in Psalm 51. He says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. See, when you're able to contrast That the good news is so good in the face of the bad news of sin that I'm forgiven, that I feel feel free from this path that sin leads me towards. The good news brings me hope and brings me freedom. And so Jesus says to Thyatira, you've done great things. You've grown so much, but do not permit, do not tolerate things in your life that God cannot. Otherwise, in your unions, in your circles, how will people see the power of the good news if you're going to tolerate that? The change that it brings and the the powerful testimony that comes when you are a changed person. If you're going to tolerate sin, you're not going to become a changed person. And if if you're not a changed person, how will people see the power of the good news? How are the other students in your school, how will they see something different in your life if you're just going to tolerate and do everything that they do? How will they know that your faith isn't something that you just do on a Sunday morning and that there's not something different inside of you? How will your coworkers, your neighbors know it's real if you just do what culture dictates is acceptable? Let me finish with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. He says, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have have come to call, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. If we're going to do that, that requires us to call sin for what it really is, sin. And the good news is this. Jesus called, in his ministry, called himself the friend of sinners. See, here's what church is supposed to be. Church is supposed to be a hospital, not a hospice. 
You see, a hospice is somewhere you go when there's nothing left that they can do for you, when all hope is gone. But their promise is that we will keep you comfortable until you die. That's not the kind of church you want to be part of. You don't want to be part of the church where we just keep you comfortable until you die. But there's many churches out there like that. They keep you comfortable, but they offer you no hope. A hospital may induce some pain along with the comfort that they bring. But when you go to a hospital, there is this hope that when you walk out, you walk in broken. But when you walk out, you are now on the path to recovery. They may need to agitate some things. They may need to, some of the things that you like to keep covered up and protect, they may need to agitate it. They may even need to operate. But ultimately, they're going to sew you up. They're going to put you on the path to recovery. And they're going to give you a future and a hope without restraint, without that old pain that nagged and held you back. And they're going to send you off to your new life with new hope and a restoration. That's the kind of church that we need to be. We need to be a hospital, not a hospice. That's what happens when you actually deal with the pain, when you actually deal with your area of weakness, when you actually call sin, sin, and allow Jesus to operate in your life. Let's pray. God, today we, we know there's areas in our lives that Sometimes we like to rationalize. Sometimes we, we know deep down your Holy Spirit is convicting us that it's an area where we know we're doing wrong. And yet we try to sweep it under the rug. We try to rationalize it. We try to pretend like everything's okay, that it's not that bad, that there are other people who are doing worse. It's not that bad. But you, you don't convict us all the same way at the same time. You convict us each individually. And so, God, today, let, give us the bravery, give us the, give us the courage to be able to, to search our hearts and actually call sin for what it really is, sin, and then offer it up for you to do your work within us and fix that spot so that we can continually grow in our faith. God, give us the courage to be able to do that on an individual basis between us and you. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to close with by taking communion together. and I trust that you've grabbed some bread product and some juice. And I'm just going to read before we wrap up from Luke 22, verse 19 says this. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Verse 20 says, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's take the cup together. God sent his son, sacrificed his son on the cross. Because in doing so, 
he allowed you to have the same power that raised him from the grave, allowed you to have the same power to be able to have control over your circumstances by asking God to come into your life and his Holy Spirit to guide you to actually inflict real change in your life. So I pray today, whatever it is, whatever it is that's, that's kind of been holding you back, that you'd call it for what it really is and that you would start on your journey to wellness. Have a great week.